Happy New Year, Utah skiers and riders. We hope you had a wonderful holiday and got out to make some turns. Hi, I'm Tom Kelly, your host for Last Chair from Ski Utah, telling the story of the greatest snow on earth. What a great holiday we had across Utah with a couple of nice storms bringing in fresh powder for all of our holiday guests uh, heading into January. Weather still looking great out at the resorts across the state. Today we're going to take a step off the slopes a bit. As much as all of us love carving a line down the mountain, one of the pieces that makes our sport so great is the camaraderie and hospitality that brings us all together. Our guest this week on Last Chair is maybe an unlikely player in the Utah ski story. David Perkins is a passionate skier and biochemist who 16 years ago decided to take a risk and follow his passion and open up a whiskey distillery in Utah together with his wife Jane. Since its founding in 2006 as one of the very first ski resort distilleries, High West has set the standard and started literally an avalanche of distillery openings at resorts across America, but it all started right here in Utah. David, welcome to last year. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank Thanks for having me. Now, I know you're a passionate skier, and I'm imagining that you got out to make a few turns over the holiday. Well, I did. Uh, even with all the crowds here, what I really love is the backcountry now. And so I, I'm lucky enough to have a son that wants to do it with me. And my daughter joined in this year. So we go backcountry skiing as a family. Where'd you head over the holidays? If I can get over 99.90, that's one of my favorite things to do. But it, in the meantime, we train a lot with the team. There's a ski mountaineering team. Yeah. And we uh, go up... Uh, either late at night at uh, Park City Mountain Resort after 6 p.m. or we go up the ULP Highway. Yeah, I'm, I'm just getting into backcountry myself. I had a wonderful outing in Big Cottonwood. We went up uh, uh, Bear Trap Fork a few yeah. weeks ago up to the Willows, which I think is just kind of off the backside of 99. It's off the backside of 99. You can get uh, there from there as well. That's right. Do, do you ever ski from uh, the side country exit on 9990 down into Big Cottonwood? Yeah, yeah. We yeah. love that. We love that. I mean, in fact, that's more convenient for us because we live over here, so we yeah. don't have to drive over there. So we have the resort pass, and we get up there and uh, um, appreciate the skull and crossbones at the at the gate when we go out. But uh, we've been sufficiently trained. Yeah. So. When you when you drop over to Big Cottonwood, how do you get back up to Park City? Do you do you ski back up and drop down, or do yeah, you, same thing. We ski back up to nine nine nine. Yeah. And, and if down. somebody come over and pick you up. No, no, we yeah. just, we, what, what we earn, we, we have to take back. So we, we <laughs> climb back up and, you know, that's part of the fun because then we earned what we eat that night. So. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And I, I had a really good time. Uh, I took my airy level one uh, avalanche training last year at Snowbird. Right. So I uh, feel good that I've got that knowledge, but it is a, an amazing asset to have this literally as we sit in your barn looking out on it right now. Oh, uh, it's hard to imagine living anywhere else with such access like we have. We're so lucky. Yeah. How did you originally get into skiing? Where did you grow up? I grew up, I was born in Denver, Littleton, and uh, my parents moved away when I was nine, and I, 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 we didn't have any money then, and, and the ski areas are away from Denver, so we went skiing once when I lived there. Just and once? It, just once, and went to uh, Winter Park, and I remember it distinctly and uh, loved it, and when we moved, uh, I, I was raised in Georgia, and I think I had two ski trips when I was raised in Georgia, once up to North Carolina and once out west. And So you did ski North Carolina? We did ski North Carolina and uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee as well. So yeah. big sheets of ice and, you know, thousands of people. And uh, But, you know, I loved sliding downhill, so. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I often ask people from the South if they ski down there. I have a, a friend of mine uh, that used to be on the U.S. ski team. She and her husband own a resort down there. And um, most everybody says, no, we just come out West. But I'm glad to hear you at least gave it a try. Oh, it's beautiful. And, you know, when you get good snow, which is very rare, it's beautiful. It's the mountains are beautiful there. So. Yeah. What, do, do you remember what was some of the magic that uh, got you excited about skiing when you were young? 
<laughs> I mean, I think it's really just uh, uh, when you're young and sliding downhill and having that gravity feeling, uh, that for me is speed and gravity, hard to resist. So let's, let's, uh, we're going to ultimately tell the high West story, but I think, uh, it's really important to learn a little bit about how you got there. And, uh, I know that, uh, you became a biochemist and maybe talk a little bit about the early part of your career setting the stage for what you ultimately did with high West. Sure. I, I, uh, I wanted to be a doctor and I majored in chemistry and school biochemistry. And, uh, at the end of school, I decided, you know, maybe medical school wasn't really where it's at. I, I think I wanted to get into business, so I got a job in biotech, and uh, I sold uh, biotech products when uh, the AIDS virus uh, came out. So they're spending more money on molecular biology research at that time, and that was a lot of fun for me. Uh, and I then decided I want to go to business school, and I went to Dartmouth, uh, and I really wanted to go there because of the skiing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, you know, with the ski area is 20 minutes away, and I'd never been in New England, and I'd never skied ice like that, and it was wonderful. So, did you ski at the Dartmouth Skiway? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you could buy a season pass for eighty bucks or something <laughs> like that. So uh, we we had the two worst years of snow, and I happened to be there. But you know, we still had snow, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And I learned how to ski ice. So, did you get up to the bigger mountains at all? Oh, I mean, Stowe and Killington. Yeah, that we didn't have a lot of money in in school, yeah. but you know, we were able to go there every now and then. So that was a lot of fun. I mean, I enjoy those areas. It's beautiful there. Yeah. When, where were you living when you started working uh, in the field? Where were you living? Uh, well, I lived in DC, then I lived in LA, and I lived in San Francisco. So from DC, I would go to uh, uh, Seven Springs and Blue Top or Blue Knob, Skiering, yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And then when I lived in LA, we'd go to Mammoth and Big Bear. And lived in San Francisco, we go to Killington, or I mean, sorry, Kirkwood and yeah. uh, Tahoe. And, you know, we know the ski areas. Everywhere we live. So you've carried that passion everywhere you've lived. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the mountains are important to me in skiing. I just love the winter sports. And, yeah. So tell me the story about how you came upon this idea. You were a biochemist and uh, somehow you got this idea that maybe you could take that skill and do something a little bit different. Well, I always wanted to do my own thing. I, I was lucky enough to work for two really great startups that became very big companies, one called Amgen, one called Genentech. And those were like Microsoft and Apple of, in the drug world. And uh, I got to see companies go from zero to 60, very big companies with very sophisticated people. And uh, I learned a lot. So they, I cut my teeth there, but I always wanted to do my own thing. Didn't know what that was. One day, my wife and I were at a wedding in Kentucky for my cousin. And we said, yeah, let's go to a distillery. Never been to one. I had a bottle of Maker's Mark in my cabinet. We went to Maker's Mark. Were you a whiskey drinker at the time? Or? Uh, you know, if I had a bottle in my cabinet, we'd have stuff every weekend, but I wouldn't call myself an aficionado. And, you know, I, I had a bottle of rum, I had a bottle of whiskey. Yeah. I like brown spirits. Yeah. Um, and we went to distillery, and you walk into the distillery, and it is the exact same business as Amgen and Genentech. Amgen and Genentech make drugs with biotechnology. Whiskey is a drug, ethanol, made with biotechnology, yeast. It's the same thing, same business, and that's where the light bulb went off for me. So, so you're one of those people on the tour who's kind of thinking beyond what the tour guide is telling you and looking at all the chemistry that's going on. A bit, yeah. I mean, you you, you walk in, you see the same equipment, you see you know fermentation tanks, you see distillation apparatus. It's it's literally the same stuff. Uh, and then the tour guide, we were living in Palo Alto at the time. The tour guide uh, was it was folksy and kind of fun, but if you're used to Napa. And you've been to Napa, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, very sophisticated, and you hear great education. And Kentucky was more folksy. And I thought, you know, we could do better than that. So that was where the idea really spawned. And 
we went into the Barrel Warehouse, which if you've never been to one, you should. They're very special places. One building with 25,000 barrels. And you walk in and it smells like vanilla and caramel. And who doesn't like vanilla and caramel? And that's where the light bulb went off for me. And I told my wife, I said, you know, we ought to make whiskey or at least think about it. And this was at Maker's Mark? That was at Maker's yeah. Mark, yeah. How, how did you, w- was was the barrel area part of the tour? Yeah, it was, it was at the end of the tour. And so, you know, you learn the process and yeah. they take you through. And um, at the end, you go through the barrel area and you get a little taste, which is great. But it's really the smell and the silence and all these things. You know, somebody put these away 10 years ago. And they've been sitting there for that long. And, you know, how do you get into that business, first of all? But just fascinating thought that somebody put those in there and they're sitting there patiently aging. Uh, that just astounded me. So th- there's a lot of people in that business. What was different in your mind? And what did you think that you could offer that would make you unique in that business? I mean, great question. Um, and absolutely, that's the first thing we thought about. Two things. One is on the tour. It wasn't educational enough, and I didn't really walk away knowing more about whiskey. I knew about Maker's Mark, but as a you know newbie to whiskey, I didn't know that much more, a little bit. So I thought we could do a better job telling people about whiskey and helping them understand and appreciate it. Second, that night in our hotel room, we watched High Plains Rifter. This <laughs> is just coincidental. So, so you wonder where the name <laughs> High West Distillery came from. Well, we're not in the deep south. We're not in the low east. We're not in the far west. We're in the high west. And high plane structure. So at that time, we wanted to move. We were in California. We were looking at moving to Utah. We didn't know what we were going to do, but that's where the light bulb went off. And, you know, high west whiskey, there were no western whiskeys. So back to your question, what would we do different? Educate people and then offer them a western product. And a western product centered around a western town. Everybody knows what miners drink. Everybody knows what cowboys drink. Skiers drink whiskey. Skiers, like you introduced the segment, as it's this camaraderie sport. Well, you need that here, and you need that opera skiing. You need a spirit or a beer to, you know, help with the the camaraderie. And we didn't have it here, and we just thought that was a natural. Did you did you literally go back to the hotel that night and start mapping it out in your mind? We mapped out the idea and the brand. That's right. You know, we had to have a Western brand, and we looked up. You know, were there any Western brands of whiskey? There really weren't at the time. There were a couple of other guys starting them. But nothing, uh, you know, commercially available yet. Uh, there is a whiskey now called Bullet Whiskey that had started then in a test market, and it's it's grown, you know, substantially. But there were no Western craft whiskeys, and we thought, gosh, if we could put it in a place that's a little easier to get to than Kentucky, because we drove two hours to Maker's Mark. Yeah. And if we could put it in a resort town where people are already there, gosh, maybe that was our marketing plan. Yeah. So you had already been thinking about. How can we move to Utah? And then this idea germinates in your mind. That's right. Did you did you look around a little bit or had was Park City on your radar? Well, it was. I mean, you know, any mountain was on our radar just because we wanted to live in the mountains. We were tired of L.A. and San Francisco. And um, having when I grew up, my parents had two cars. They were both Jeeps. We were in the mountains every weekend. So for me, the mountains were in my bones. So it had to be mountain town. So we looked at Jackson Hole. We looked at Sun Valley. We looked at Telluride. Um, they're all hard to get to. Park City's not. So Park City was kind of a natural. It was. It started to be first on the list, and then it ended first on the list just because it's, you know, it's easy sell. As, as you were looking around these ski towns for a place to locate this company, were you chatting it up with any of the locals about what your idea was or your concept? Well, there's one local I met here. His name's Greg Scherf. And uh, boy, he was cheerleader number one. 
So, uh, and did you search him out, by the way? Well, you know, I got introduced to him by a, a good friend of ours, Rick Brighton, uh, who's an architect in town. And uh, he said, gosh, I got the guy you got to meet. And, you know, we sat down with Greg and, you know, two hours later, I was three feet off the ground floating because Greg was just, you know, we got to make this happen. So, you yeah. know, for, for those who don't know Greg Scherf, uh, he's a, uh, I'm from Wisconsin. Greg is as well. And he came out here to Park City in the 80s. And in 1986, uh, he was successful in changing the laws in Utah to allow a microbrewery up on Main Street, which became Wasatch Brewing, uh, was really one of the first, if not the first, craft brewery in a resort town in America. And I imagine he had some good direction for you uh, he's the father of alcohol in utah really uh, other than Brigham young yeah. and uh greg had a lot of uh, advice and you know he, he was a great friend a great mentor a uh, great cheerleader good yeah. did did you i think one of the things that uh is as you look at high west you look at the location and the buildings that that you were able to acquire uh what was the process of finding that home for the company mm. well you know Greg said, you know, you got to find a place to put this. And I said, oh, God, I, that's the hardest part. And he said, oh, no, there's only one place you could be. And I said, what? And he said, the old barn, you know, the old stable down at the bottom of Main Street, the National Garage. There was nothing going on there at the time either. No, no. I mean, it was just, uh, uh, I think, you know, they were using the, the, the house is empty because uh, the um, Watts had moved out and uh, they were renting out the National Garages for people to put stuff in. So Greg said, you know, that's got to be your place. And I thought, oh, my God, there's no way. And he said, well, let's just go down to City Hall and uh, make a pitch for it. So he took me down to City Hall and, you know, they have open mic session. And, uh, you know, he says, here's my good friend, Dave. He wants to start a distillery. Dave, you're up. And, you know, I I felt like the guy talking to the Wizard of Oz. And uh, I was a little scared, but uh, I told him what I wanted to do. And they're like, hmm, that sounds like a pretty good idea. So So they were receptive. They were at the time. They'd actually bid it out to a guy that was going to build a a glass blowing shop. Mm -hmm there, if you remember that. And mm-hmm. um, it took him a while. He never came up with the money. And so they rebid it out. And, you know, he could have bid just as anybody. And uh, we bid for that. Uh, and I think 30 other people bid for it. And luckily, we won the bid. So Yeah. What did you need to do in terms of laws when you came here? Was Were, were the laws of the state such that you were able to move in? Or did you need to get some things adjusted to accommodate uh, a small distillery? Well, believe it or not, the, the ABC actually had a law in the books for a distillery. They didn't even know it. So I went down there and asked, and, you know, they go to back to the big book and look, and the guy says, yeah, sure enough, here you can have a distillery here. It's already accounted for. So nobody knew that. I didn't know that until we asked. It was a little bit better than what Greg had to deal That's with. That's right. So they must have put it in when you know, they changed the laws for Greg, but they didn't even know when they put it in. Um, but, you know, uh, at least we asked, so that was the great thing. And uh, what did happen was they adjusted some of the laws after that to make it easier for us to sell on site uh, and things like that. So, Did you find the whole process to be relatively accommodating to what you were trying to do as a as I did, actually. Believe it or not, I mean, the, the ABC was quite helpful. You know, they weren't. Uh, opposed to this at all. And they actually liked the idea and they wanted to help. So, you know, within the constraint of law and they bent over backwards to help us do what we needed to do. So it was a great process. So this was something really different for the community. Uh, Do you have any fun stories to share about some of the challenges maybe you did have in bringing a very different business into town? Well, I think the biggest one was, you know, people being afraid of what a distillery is and does. And, um, you know, the the people in the backyard of the building um, didn't, really like the idea of it because they thought it would blow up or create fires or stink or things like that. And, um, you know, through an education process, we were able to convince people there's there's very large distilleries and breweries and places that aren't defensive and 
uh, we were going to be a small place. So yeah. it, it turned out okay, but it was, it was an education process like anything. You know, as, as, as I can recall from that time period, you also, uh, to get up and running, you actually started distilling in other locations and storing before you actually were operating here. Is that right? Well, a couple of things. I mean, one, we set up a pilot uh, distillery in Greg's warehouse down in Salt Lake. So that's where we started our process and got our license. And then uh, to get the business going and, and meet the cash flow needs, we bought whiskeys from other distilleries, which is, I think, what mm -hmm. you're referring yeah. to. So we did what we thought was a very new and innovative strategy and approach to it, which turns out it wasn't that new. Just people never knew that that's how a lot of the liquor that gets to them happens. Well, I think uh, it happens in the wine business as well. It happens in every business. That yeah. Brooks Brothers shirt you're wearing is not made by a Brooks Brothers <laughs> factory. It's made by some factory in China or whatever. And Let um, the record show I'm not wearing a Brooks Brothers <laughs> shirt though today. Uh, that's right. Or L.L. Bean or whatever. But it, it was an education process, again, for us to teach people there's a lot of products that they get that aren't necessarily made by the name yeah. on the bottle. And we were honest about it, which a lot of other people weren't. Yeah. So that's what I think helped us in the long run was, you know, we, we were creating these blends that didn't exist from disparate products. And we one plus one equals three in the case of a lot of our products. In, in that time period, were you starting to put, though, your stamp on the product characteristics and the quality of the product? I think so. I mean, I, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I, almost all of our products were rated to 90 points or higher. Um, and, you know, what we were able to do in our blends was create something you couldn't buy. Was if, if you have two different flavor profiles and meld them together, you end up with a better product sometimes. And that's exactly what we did. Had that so, been, was that much of that being done in the whiskey industry at the time? It was. The other innovation was telling people about it. And, you know, marketing is, is more than just advertisements and, and uh, the Swedish bikini team. It's, it's education and helping the consumer understand why they're paying for what they're paying for. And uh, uh, we were very uh, forward on our education. What's in the bottle? What's it going to taste like? And, you know, how is it made? We were very clear about that, where a lot of companies don't take the time to tell their customers that. As a biochemist, where did you get that kind of marketing sense or sense of brand that you're talking about here? Because this is this is great marketing, mm. and I, I'm, I'm not sure I would think that a biochemist would ha would have that. Well, um, my biochemistry career was short, and then when I got my master's in business, my first job out of school was in marketing for Perfect. drug companies. And you might say, well, drug companies don't really need to market. All you need is a 1-800 number. Well, it turns out doctors are the best people to market to, and all they want are the facts. And if you're very clear with them and, and organizing your thoughts, uh, marketing does affect doctors, but it's, it's factual-based, not bullshit-based. And I think that's what I brought from pharma or biotech to uh, booze was most booze is bullshit. Mm -hmm. And we don't really do that in the pharma industry. And I think that's where I got it from. Yeah. So. What was your first whiskey? My first whiskey? Uh, you know, I think I snuck some when I was a kid. Uh, probably Jim Beam was probably my first whiskey. Yeah. And I, I remember uh, my wife's, when, when we were married and had our first kid when she was pregnant, uh, we would drink whiskey to kind of calm her. So. It was Jim Beam. And, and, and as you uh, introduced the High West line, uh, uh, was Rendezvous the first uh, product that you introduced? Rendezvous was our first product. So we started High West to make our own whiskey. You actually distill it and make it. And then I met a, a, a guy that ran a distillery called Four Roses, which is a, a well-known distillery now. Uh, and he brought them back from the dead based on quality. And he was one of my closest advisors. And he said, you know, you ought to buy whiskey and sell it as your own. And if I were you, I'd buy rye. And at the time, nobody drank rye. Mm -hmm. 
And so I tasted this rye. Rendezvous is a, a couple of ryes. One is made in an old Seagram's plant that they make Seagram 7 and, and Crown out of. Uh, those are blends. We plucked the rye out of those blends and sold it on its own, which nobody had ever had. And then we, we mixed some 16-year-old in. And that was a different innovative product that nobody had ever had. Uh, and we took a bet on that. So Yeah. What was the product that really caused the company to to move forward? I mean, I'd say it would be Rendezvous. I mean, we, at the same time we had Rendezvous, we had Avaca. And, uh, you know, everybody said, God, you have Avaca. I don't, we don't sell that much now. Um, we also introduced two older products or three older, an eight, a 16 year old rye and a 21 year old rye. And they were, you know, 80 bucks and a hundred bucks. And people weren't used to paying that much mm-hmm. for products then. Rendezvous was 35 or 40 bucks. Yeah. And, uh, we got a double gold on that. Then we got, uh, the best value. It got a 95 point rating from Whiskey Advocate, which is the, the major publication. And we got the best value, highest points for the best price, whiskey. And that's what took us, what helped yeah. us take off. You know, let, let's let's look around at some other resorts. And one of the things that, that struck me uh, uh, in researching this uh, this interview was that there really were no other distilleries at ski resorts. I think that Wyoming Whiskey up in Jackson was starting at about the same time, but you were really pioneering at that point. Uh, there was no other example out there. Yeah, it, it, you know, there was a couple in uh, one in Oregon, Crater Lake, one in Idaho, Bardenay. Uh, they weren't at, at resorts though, and the one in Jack—they're not in Jackson. They're really out in the middle of nowhere, in like Thermopolis or something like that. Um, and then there was one in Colorado and Denver. Uh, so I'd say we were the first in a resort, which was you know, surprising to me I, that no one had thought of it yet. But um, it was nascent. I mean, it was early for, for distilling. There were uh, 50 distillers when we submitted for our license in the United States. 50 in the United States? 50 in the United States. Now there's 2,500. 50 to 2,500 yeah. over 15 years. That's right. And before Prohibition, I think there were maybe 10,000. So, you know, one could look at the tea leaves and say, well, maybe there's a cycle here and it might come back. And that was kind of one thing I placed a bet on was, yeah. you know, I thought it just made sense. And to put it in a in a ski resort where people are coming to you rather than in the middle of Kentucky where they're not, they have to seek you out. I thought that just made a lot more sense. So. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about the, this this concept of camaraderie and hospitality. And, you know, I, I, I look at what we have in here in Utah and particularly right here in Park City. Uh, uh, we have wonderful restaurants. We have yeah. several breweries. We have some great resorts that are really focused on customer service. And you brought a new product in with with whiskey and, 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 and really built quite an amazing brand. It's really one that's built around hospitality. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think for us, Getting that building at the bottom of quit and time run was probably the most important thing to me and the luckiest thing that could have happened was being on the ski run. So we called ourselves the world's only skiing gastro distillery, and we were serious about gastro. And I got lucky to meet James Dumas, our, our head chef, and we, we put a lot of money into that building and fixing up and making it feel authentic. And even if we didn't make money on the restaurant, we knew it would attract people to come and then learn about the, the spirits. And that was that was the bet we made. And, you know, paid off. It worked out. Yeah. As we were talking about before the interview, um, I grew up in the Midwest. I was a beer drinker, maybe a little bit of brandy old-fashioned because I was from Wisconsin. But I really had never grown to maybe understand or, or like whiskeys. But I think High West has really changed that. And if, if I look back at the history and what has 
transformed over the last 15 years is you really did educate people on what it was and why it's a little bit different and how it can be a part of your whole experience. I think that it's changed a lot. Alcohol consumption in the United States bottomed out per capita in 1998, believe it or not. It's not that long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it hit a peak in the 70s, bottomed out, and on its way up, uh, you know, first was just cheap whiskey, and that's what the company's focused on. But as newer products started coming out, everybody got into the game of you have to educate your customers because if you're going to raise your prices and charge more, people got to know what they're paying for. And so that was a big part of our strategy was to not only help people um, understand what whiskey is so they could start to enjoy it, but understand how to appreciate it more. Uh, because education leads to appreciation and, and that ritual of being in a ski town and that ritual of opera ski centers around alcohol. And we wanted to be a part of that and help that and help grow that and make it be a special thing in Park City. You were also successful in taking the High West brand, not just around the United States, but really around the world. And I remember the first time that I was skiing somewhere over in Europe and I look at the back bar and there's a bottle of High West, long ways from home. You know, there were, we've heard of strange places how it got there, and usually those are by aficionados or connoisseurs that just tasted it, loved it, and smuggled it back to put it on the bar, which, you know, was fun and surprising always to see. I loved getting pictures of uh, High West in Venice or Vienna or, or wherever, so. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know for me it's like a little bit of little bit of home when you're over in Colorado and you see a, a bottle of High West uh, up uh, up on the bar. Um, I know that you uh, you sold uh, your interest in the company a few years ago, but you're still closely connected and still an ambassador for the brand. Well, I mean, it's 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 you know always in the heart, and uh, you know I don't work there anymore, but I sure uh, have it in the heart and sell it whenever I can, and uh, you know I, I love seeing the old employees and. Uh, you know, still always be a part of us. So. Yeah. So we want to try a little bit here. And uh, we've got uh, three bottles we're going to taste. And uh, David, if you could do the honors and let's uh, let's uh, start with a little rendezvous. And uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, we're going to do a, do a little tasting here uh, in the barn here uh, off of Old Ranch Road in Park City. We're going to start with a little rendezvous rye, one of the originals from High West. And uh, David, oh, look at that. Nice and golden. Okay. So, Ronnie, who, uh, this was our first product. And, you know, I think it's probably, uh, if you forced me with a gun to my head, what my favorite is, it'd probably be Ronnie Vu. Uh, but, I mean, we, all, we came with them all. We came out with all these products for a reason. They all have different taste profiles that we could help people understand, appreciate whiskey. And not everybody always likes the same thing. Yeah. So, but Ronnie Vu, what's beautiful about it, it is, it's a rye. And rye really died out. Um, and it, it's really only come back in the last 10 years, but we know that rye was a big part of the whiskey drinking uh, scene before Prohibition. Mm. So it, uh, it's different than bourbon because it's made from rye grain. Bourbon's made from corn. Mm. Corn's a little sweeter. Rye's a little spicier if you think of rye bread. Mm -hmm. So you get these beautiful, uh, what I call Christmas mauling spices uh, from the rye. And, uh, you know, when you smell it, for me, I get all spice, nutmeg, and clove. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about Rendezvous Rye. You get that, just that Christmas mauling spice profile. And, mm. uh, just smells wonderful. And I could smell it all night, Tom. So just saying. <laughs> well, let's drink it here. Well, cheers. Here, cheers. Oh, goodness me. That's so good. So, yeah, it, it for me, it's uh, Christmas mauling spices. Just beautiful cinnamon, nutmeg, clove, and... 
a little drier than a bourbon. So I love rye. Oh, that's a that's a great description spoken from the master's lips. <laughs> ah, well, gosh, it is. Uh, it's just delicious to have a sip of at five o'clock. My mouth salivates when we get to five o'clock every day, and mm, I love having a little nip. I I like your description of uh, being at the bottom of quitting time. It's uh, just a great way to kind of come down and make that last run and <clears throat> oh, I love put your I love skis on the on rack quitting and, time and you know it, only when it's not icy uh, and it's icy a lot. But it sure is a fun run to come down and come into the restaurant. Uh, we just uh, were thankful we were able to get a place right there and be part of that ritual of opera ski. You know, fun. you know one one of the things that uh, my wife Carol and I have really enjoyed about high west is the uh, are the small little rooms the parlor rooms upstairs oh by the they're bar. beautiful yeah. they're just a wonderful place to have a little bit of a different quiet experience uh from what you have downstairs at the bar and we always try to jostle our way to get up get up into there and and and, and find a spot uh, uh, a great place to bring guests oh i love that building all the different rooms are so unique and um, it's nice to be able to get quiet in there in that historic house great history yeah in that it house. really is Okay, so what do we have up next? Mm. Okay, well, I thought we would go on to a bigger whiskey because Ronnie was so good. You want to uh, step up if you can. And uh, one of our special whiskeys we came out with was called Burai. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting a package in the mail of some whiskey samples from Kentucky. And, uh, you know, we had a couple of ryes, a couple of bourbons, and they all tasted good. And I thought, well, what if you mix a couple of these together? And we mixed a rye and a bourbon. And I thought, oh, my God, that's delicious. What are we going to call it? Ribo, bourbony. And we came up with the name that night, Boo Rye. So Boo we, Rye. We have, yeah, Boo Rye. Uh, we have a jackalope on the label. It's a great-looking jackalope. It's a, it's a bona fide drawing from 1830s from Germany, and it's in an you know, animal book from like a Darwinistic textbook from Germany. So apparently there, there are these real animals that have these bony features and uh, that's a real drawing of one. So there you go, Tom. That's crazy. <laughs> so, but we couldn't think of any other name other than Boo Ryan. It sort of fits. So uh, yeah, there you go. It's, it certainly does. So Boo Ryan is older whiskeys in rendezvous. And so you get the sweet from the bourbon and you get the spicy from the rye. And it's the, the, the sweet kind of start kicks in at first. And then the, the rye spice is what kind of shifts to the second chapter of this whiskey. So it's a two-chapter whiskey. Boy, very nice. Very different smell. Yeah, smooth. and mm. It's a richer, thicker uh, whiskey, a little more caramel. and mm -hmm. um, Boy, so, it goes down good. So why, why is this smoother than Rendezvous? Well, smooth sort of a... It's a whiskey term you can hear from uh, novices to uh, aficionados and connoisseurs. And what it really boils down to, at least in, in my personal opinion, is older whiskeys have been wood, in wood longer. Whiskey pulls sugars out of the wood. When you add sugar into an alcoholic spirit, which is going to burn, sugar kind of calms the burn from ethanol. So an older whiskey has more sugar, and it's going to feel a little smoother and not have that quite same burn that the younger whiskeys do. You know, one of my favorites is campfire. And I know we don't have that in our tasting today, but what gives campfire that unique smoky characteristic? Yeah, that's a... It was a weird blend that we, we came up with the idea in Scotland, and Scotland's known for their smoky whiskeys. And my wife and I were on Isla, which is an island on the West Coast, 
and it's uh, spelled I-S-L-A-Y. And some people mm-hmm. say Islay, and I'm, this is your educational <laughs> aside for today. You pronounce it Isla. Isla. And exactly. And uh, that's where the traditional whiskeys are smoked with peat. And we had a dish there that inspired They're actually campfire. smoked with peat? Well, you, they cut the peat for firewood. Yeah. And you, we went and cut some one day, and they, they look like Duraflame logs when yeah. you cut them out, and they dry yeah. them out. Apparently, you've done this before, oh, I yeah. guess. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> I've done the Duraflames. <laughs> there you go. When you when you uh, make malted barley or malted any grain, which is the key to whiskey, you put water on it and germinate it, and it starts to grow, and then you want to stop it from growing. So you essentially kill the, the little baby, and you kill it with heat. And in Isla, they would have these floors that were perforated, and they would put the peat logs underneath and burn them. And because the floors are perforated, the smoke went through mm-hmm. To kill it, so it, they didn't do that on purpose. That's just how they happen to do it, and now it's traditions, and people like the taste. Well, we uh, ended up having a, we had a dessert in the bed and breakfast there, where they took a bottle of whiskey, the Isla whiskey, and they reduced it down to a cup. And I said, "What are you going to do with that?" And they put a, a thing of sugar in it. And for dessert that night, they brought out this simple syrup made from smoky whiskey. So it was a smoky simple syrup, and they drizzled it across honeydew. So you had the smoke on this honey. It was the weirdest dessert wow. I ever had, but it was delicious. And that was inspiration for the campfire whiskey because we bought this fruity bourbon. And so we mixed the, uh, some scotch with the fruity bourbon and that became campfire. So campfire is actually bourbon, rye, and scotch, but bourbon's the, the base sweet, and then you get the smoky from the scotch. Do you do this experimentation in a secret little lab somewhere in the building? Um, well, no, we did out front of everybody. And I mean, there was a little lab in the, in high Western. A lot, most of it's done at home at night. You know, yeah. When we're kind of relaxing and having fun. I, I enjoy it. You make tasting. a mistake and you pour the wrong thing in. <laughs> I mean, you make the mistake and you drink it. So, you know, the mistakes, the making mistakes isn't that bad of a thing. But yeah, we did a lot of experiments at High West. And, uh, you know, to, it, it seemed to help us sell our product to have different products with different taste profiles. Cool. You know, this next product is another example of that. This was an experiment where, uh, we had our national sales manager that used to make wine. I said, you know, get every wine barrel you can and let's stick whiskey in all those wine barrels. And this was this result of we tasted maybe 20 of them. And at that tasting of 20, two tasted really good. And then I mixed them together. And at the end of the tasting, it was, oh, my God, this should be a product. So they tasted like Christmas. And so this is called a Midwinter Night's Dram. Yeah. And uh, we were going to call it Christmas whiskey. Turns yeah. out somebody had that name. They <laughs> trademarked it. And I was so mad. Uh but this was summertime, and my daughter was reading A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. And so the, I, it, we ended up with a better name, we think. The yeah, whiskey, I think you did, too. It's, uh, it's rendezvous aged in uh, port barrels, so you get kind of a raisiny, fruity note on the rendezvous, mm-hmm. uh, and French oak. And French oak has tannins and spiciness, uh, clove spices. So if you get uh, dried raisins and fruits with... Christmas spices. It sounds like Christmas cake mm-hmm. to me. So that's why I say t- t- it tastes like Christmas to me. So this started with the rendezvous rye mm-hmm. that we had in our first taste. Mm-hmm. Completely different profile. Yeah. Because of the barrels, the wine barrels. So uh, you can taste that fruity kind of deep cherries oh, totally. note in there yeah. mixed with the rendezvous Christmas spices. And if you've ever had a plum pudding for Christmas, for instance, or fruit cake. Um, but I, I think I'm more of the plum pudding that you light on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the taste I get out of this. And oh my God, I just love it. How long is it in those barrels? It depends on how fresh they are. Mm-hmm. Meaning, um, if it was a one-use barrel, they might be in shorter. If we've used it three times, mm-hmm. it might be in longer. Because you can get that 
uh, port flavor out of a barrel after subsequent uses. Yeah. So it depends on you know the the routine of that barrel. Have you have you? I think you've done some partnerships with brewers to brew beer in your whiskey barrels, haven't you? You know, um, I don't remember us doing. They might have done some now that uh, that I, I don't know about. Uh, I know Jameson has done that. Yeah. Um, so there have been some whiskeys that have done that. And, um, well, this has been an amazing experience to hear from the expert uh, about a few of these great High West products. And um, how ma- actually, how many uh, how many total whiskeys did High West develop? You know, well, off the top of my head, I mean, we, we've always had what we've called this core four. So Double yeah. Rye, Rendezvous, American Prairie, uh, and Campfire. And then we had different specialty whiskeys layered on top of that. So Midwinter's Dram, Boo Rye. Uh, but then we had ver- various barrel releases, special releases that you could only buy at High West. So, you know, we're probably up in the 30s or 40s, different whiskeys. Cool. But we'll always have the core four that, you know, you can find on the shelf anywhere. Well, I, th- I thank you for spending some time with us today. We're going to move into the uh, uh, lightning round now where we're going to try a few questions out and learn a little bit more about you as we close off this uh, interview with David Perkins, the uh, visionary and founder of High West. Uh, first of all, what was the ski area where you first learned to ski? Well, it depends on how you define learn. I mean, my first ski area was Winter Park in Colorado. Learn to ski? You know, I would say I didn't really learn to ski till I moved to Park City because I was okay, but I really wasn't very good. Yeah. Uh, but I've been to a lot of ski areas, so um, learned to ski. I'd probably say Park City Mountain Resort or Canyons. I moved here when I was 40, but I didn't consider myself a good skier. Consider yourself a good skier now? Uh, I'm better. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, favorite ski run in Utah? Oh, well, if it's not quitting time, because we talked about quitting yeah. time. Um, you know, in inbounds versus outbounds. Inbounds, you know, I actually like the Iron Mountain runs. Uh uh, is it Copperhead? And what's yep. the other one that's the on the far left when you're going down? Mercury. Mercury. I love Mercury and Copperhead. Yeah. I like the slope on Mercury. I love going fast. Yeah. Copperhead, I love bombing down that. Yeah. Oh, those are fun. I like Boa because it's kind of fun. Boa's fun. Up at the top because I like the, the the slope angle and it gets great powder. I like skiing the powder there. I like Murdoch for powder and climbing Murdoch. Yeah. Um, anything. Love doing a little boot pack up there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anything yeah. to get that heart rate going and yeah. stuff. So a lot of great ski runs here, though. Favorite ski resort outside of Utah? Oh, boy. Well, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to go to St. Anton once. Uh, Wonderful you know, place. At the recommendation of James Dumas, and we, we stayed in St. Anton. Oh, my God. They know how to do it. They know how to do the, the ritual, the opera yeah. ski. Yeah. Everything yeah. there was just glamorous and glorious and beautiful. And, uh, that was Yeah, that'd have to be up there. Did you get over to Lek and Zors? We got to Lek. Yeah. Didn't get to Zors. I mean, yeah. that, was, that would have been a long day, I think, getting yeah. over that far. But, you know, we went over and had lunch. It's a big mountain there, isn't it? I mean, it's like the whole country's linked with ski slopes. <laughs> so it's just amazing how you can ski from town to town. Wonderful place. I mean, you can get right off. You can take the train and just walk off the train and walk to your hotel. And They they know how to do it over there. So, you know, I, I, I hope we get there because it's sure is special doing how, you know, how the Europeans do skiing is special. Yeah. Best on-mountain dining experience. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, the food's changed so much, and it's we have a lot of great restaurants. You know, I, I, uh, I like the farm a lot. I like Cloud Dine. Um, have you had the donuts at Cloud Dine? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, hot donuts. It, at the Dartmouth Ski Area, they had, a, they had a small kitchen with hot dogs and hot chocolate, but they had the best fresh donuts there. So, yeah, Cloud Dine has pretty good donuts. So, yeah. cool. I'd have to say that's probably my favorite. That's good food. Favorite High West whiskey? 
You know, I mean, everybody always asks me this, and I always say, well, they're all great because we wouldn't have come out with them if they weren't. Uh, but I have to say that rendezvous was pretty darn good. You know? Which one? The rendezvous. Yeah. The, the first one we started with. It just, it's standard, tastes great, tastes like you know Christmas mauling spices. Yeah. Who doesn't like mauling spices? Favorite whiskey outside of High West? Mm. The world is filled with great whiskeys, and to be forced to pick one is super difficult because there's so many good whiskeys. One that has a good memory? Um, you know, but if, if you force me to, I, I love Wild Turkey. I love Wild Turkey okay. 101. It's a great whiskey. Uh, you know, we've been to the plant. We know the guys that make it. Uh, and for the price, it's probably the best whiskey for the price you can buy. I love Wild Turkey 101. How about favorite Utah craft beer? Mm. Well, actually, my favorite, that, that, that's an easy one for me. They don't make it anymore. And I'm so mad at Greg for this. <laughs> it's called Superior. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, was, it was a lager, Superior lager. And I thought it was just delicious. Uh, and they discontinued it, you know, maybe a year after I started working with Greg. But it had this malty kind of beautiful flavor profile to it. We'll so. get a campaign going to bring it back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I hope so. Oh, it was such a good beer. I know you love cars, but favorite antique car? Oh, boy. I'm kind of an Alfa Romeo guy. I'm an Italian guy, and I, I yeah. love old Alfa Romeos. And uh, my, my dream cars are the old Alfa Romeos of the 60s. So one last question. I ask this of everyone. Groomers, moguls, powder, or glades? Well, oh, gosh. And I have to say, I had Shannon Barkey on a few weeks ago, and I thought for sure someone was finally going to pick moguls. But she went with powder like everybody else. Yeah, powder's probably. I mean, it's kind of an easy answer. It's powder. It is an easy you know? answer. And then if there's not powder, then it's groomer for me because groomers are nice here. But uh, Nothing like a good groomer day. No, nah, but powder, you know, we're all here for the powder. So it's, if you answered otherwise, it'd be hard to imagine. David, it's been great to have you on. Thank you for taking some time. and tasting a few High West whiskeys and cool. spending some time with us on Last Chair. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Whiskey and skiing, it's a part of the hospitality culture of our sport. It was a fascinating look into the growth of High West here in Utah. More storms coming, so get out this week and make a few turns. I'm Tom Kelly, your host for Ski Utah's Last Chair. I'll see you on the slopes. <laughs>